Good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. Hope you're having a good one. It is Tuesday morning, June 22nd. Yesterday was the longest day of the year. And I think for some people who lost power last night, it may have been even longer. But good to be in this morning. A lot going on in the world of sports. It's, it's so funny that this past weekend was one of the great sports weekends, in my opinion, that we've had in a long, long time. We had the U.S. Open going on. That was fantastic. Certainly going to talk about that. A Game 7 on Saturday night in the NBA, a Game 7 on Sunday night, coupled with a Game 1. The NHL playoffs still going on. It just is fantastic. And, of course, Major League Baseball. And with all that, where am I going to start? But in the NFL. I'm going to start with the Buffalo Bills. News came out this week. And first, shout out to our local reporters, Thad Brown and Mike Catalano. The two of them each had the scoop. And none of the Buffalo reporters had it. None of the longtime guys from the papers in Rochester and Buffalo had it. But Mike Catalano and Thad Brown broke the news that the Bills are planning to build a new open-air stadium in Orchard Park. Now, since the Pagulas took over, and frankly, long before that, when Ralph Wilson was still the owner, there was a ton of discussion about what to do about the stadium. There have been several uh, several attempts to revitalize what I'll call Ralph Wilson Stadium. I'm not throwing that new name on that stadium because I think it's crap that a health insurance company that is charging its customers outrageous fees will spend millions and millions of dollars annually to get their name out there for their own purpose. I mean, let's face it, health insurance companies don't need to advertise. You have like two choices. It's one or the other. So why are they doing this? Well, that's their business model. Excuse me. But at Ralph Wilson Stadium, several attempts have been made to upgrade the facility, keep it current, increase revenue streams by creating more premium seating, things like that. New turf went in a couple of years ago. So the, the Ralph has been remodeled, renovated, and kept fairly current. But in the NFL today, it's all about revenue streams and additional revenue streams. And with an outdated stadium, you're limited in your additional revenue streams. The Pagulas were going to be forced into this eventually. We heard the NFL commissioner, Roger Goodell, state that he knows that they needed to get a new stadium. That's something that's been under or behind the scenes, if you will, under the current situation that for a long time. So this is welcome news. The current lease at Ruffleson Stadium expires in 2023. The new stadium likely won't be ready for business until 2025 or 26. So that's part of the equation. The first big piece that Thad Brown and Mike Catalana's report said was that this is going to be an outdoor stadium built in Orchard Park. So that's the first thing. Why Orchard Park? Why not downtown? Well, the pandemic changed many things in our daily routine. And and for many people, our way of life and the way we generate our incomes has changed greatly. The Bagulas 
at the time of the pandemic were, in my opinion, positioning themselves to build a downtown stadium. They had built a hotel right next to Key Bank Arena. In Key Bank Arena, they had a bar and restaurant called 716. They then partnered with Labatt to create the John Labatt House right in that area. A huge facility with a microbrewery put in, I should say a pilot brewery put in and run by the company that owns the Genesee Brew House here in Rochester. So there are a lot of possibilities downtown pre-pandemic. The Pagulas were also front and center in trying to bring a casino to Buffalo. And it's my opinion that their original hope was to build a downtown stadium right where they had other ancillary businesses that would benefit on game day and year round because of the building of a new stadium. And I also believe that that new stadium under their plans would have had a casino in it to create a year round venue. Then the pandemic hit and the hotel restaurant industry changed dramatically. The revenue at 716 dried up to zero with no fans in the arena this past season, no concerts, no events. There was no money to be made. That venue has since been sold to the Southern Tier Brewing Company. So that's step one. The John Labatt House has been closed since the beginning of the pandemic. And it closed quickly. If you remember, they furloughed or laid off all of their hospitality workers. I've been told that the Pagulas want to divest themselves from all their hospitality holdings. I also have been told that there's a possible sale in place for the Labatt House. So pre-pandemic, the Pagulas positioned themselves with ancillary businesses for a downtown stadium. Post-pandemic, they're divesting themselves <clears throat> from all of the other, <clears throat> excuse me, all of the other holdings they have downtown. And now they're just going to be a business that owns a football team. So you don't need the other businesses. You've still got the arena down there to generate year-round revenue when things come back to normal. And fortunately, it looks like things are going to be coming back to normal. So the Bakulas have changed their business model, in my opinion. I, I, I honestly believe a year ago, pre-pandemic, the plan was downtown. Pandemic changes everything. Now they're divesting themselves of their businesses around the arena and are going to build an Orchard Park. So that's the answer to question one. Why Orchard Park? Question two. There is an open-air content to this. Why not a dome? Why not a retractable dome? And to me, I believe this is about budgeting. Look, the additional revenue that the other businesses would have provided had they gone downtown pre-pandemic, like I said, that can be made up by staying in Orchard Park and having other things go on there. Parking, for example. They wouldn't have gotten a ton of revenue for parking downtown because the footprint wouldn't have allowed for a ton of stadium parking. Orchard Park, there's going to be a ton of stadium parking. They'll be able to make money off of that. So it's not a huge switch. But the proximity 
now with Orchard Park being the place, it's not going to be a year-round venue. You're not going to put a casino there and have hotels and other things around it that are going to work year-round. So it's not going to be a year-round facility. It's going to be a football facility that probably will host some events early in the summer, concerts and things like that throughout. But there's no need for a year-round concept. And again, this is the changing, in my opinion, of the business plan of the Pagulas. So you look at what they're doing. They're going to make it so that the fans are covered, is what both Thad and Mike's report said. So the partial roof will kind of help the fans out a little bit. Here's what I don't really love about that idea. In Buffalo, in the football season, you know, it starts September and ends in January. You've got eight or nine games, depending on the 17th game, if it's home or away, eight or nine games to be played there. Four or five of which will be played in very good weather. And that means three or four are going to be played in likely bad weather. You put a roof around the stadium that covers the fans, you're taking the sun out of play, which in a November day where it's 40 degrees and the sun's out, that sun changes the temperature greatly. And it makes it feel much more comfortable. I would much rather leave that, that roof off covering the fans. If you want to put a little bit of an overhang to cover the very top area, fine. But if all the fans, like what they did in Miami, are going to be in the shade for most of the time, I, I just don't think it's a good idea. So that's one of the things I don't like that I've read so far. The interesting part to me about this is the partnering with a couple companies and the potential development of the stadium, A, B, the sale of PSLs, and I'll get to that in a moment. They partnered with a company that is was started and is partially owned by Jerry Jones. Now, I, as a lifelong Dallas Cowboy fans, do not like Jerry Jones. I, I think he's a terrible owner for the Cowboys, and I don't believe that the Cowboys will ever win anything while Jerry's in charge of that team. He, he just thinks he's too smart and makes football decisions that aren't good decisions. Now, on the business side, Jerry Jones has been absolutely brilliant. You look at what he has done with the Cowboys, bought the stadium, Texas Stadium at the time, and the Cowboys for $140 million in 1989. It's now worth, the, the team itself is now worth between 4 and $5 billion. He's also built Jerry World, AT&T Stadium, which is another unbelievable piece of the puzzle for the Cowboys. Jerry knows how to make money. Jerry also has been a key part of the television negotiations for the NFL over the last 20 years. Television revenues have skyrocketed. They just renegotiated a new television, a series of new television contracts. And Jerry was a big part of that. Jerry's a power broker in the NFL. Not all NFL owners are equal. Shad Khan, the Jacksonville Jaguars owner, doesn't have the same sway as Jerry Jones or Robert Kraft. These guys have much more sway than some other owners. 
in my opinion, very smart for the Pagulas to partner with Jerry Jones on this project. It will behoove them to do so. It will also help with the financing portion of it. The NFL has programs to help fund new stadiums. That's going to be a piece of the big piece of the puzzle of how this gets done, the financing. And, of course, at this point, the infancy of the reports that we have don't detail a whole lot of how the financing is going to go. You look at what the Pagula's face to do this. I believe it's going to be between two and three and a half billion dollars to get this stadium built. I also think there's a possibility that they can build it side by side to the current stadium and not disrupt the current stadium and be able to use that stadium right up until the final year when they have to take it down and then create more parking. If you follow stadiums, how they're built, and we, I'll give you a few examples. The Key Bank Arena was built right next to the old Buffalo Ock. If you went to that arena in the early days, you saw the hole in the ground where the odd was, literally right next door. City Field, where the Mets play, literally in the parking lot behind the old Shea Stadium. They played in Shea Stadium right up until the end, tore the stadium down in the offseason, created more parking. Again, for a short period of time, the loss of parking is a hardship, but it's not nearly the hardship that there would be to have a team play on the road, whether it be Toronto, Penn State, Syracuse, Pittsburgh, Cleveland. Those are all possibilities should the Bills build the stadium in the exact same spot that the current stadium is. I think if they can build it literally adjacent to it, right next to it, I think that they can get it done with loss of parking for a couple of years in the footprint of the new stadium and not disrupt the team. And I think that's something that needs to be explored and hopefully will be, in, in my opinion, will be how they do it. The financing. Again, two to three and a half billion dollars, I believe, to build this stadium, to create this project. The NFL has program. They will donate money, say $500 million. That still leaves $3 billion short. We are coming out of a pandemic which New York State financially was hurt big time. Erie County, no different. Hurt big time. They are two entities that will contribute money to this stadium project. But how much? I don't think very much at all. And frankly, it's going to end up on the Pagulas as to how much they're willing to spend. Now, here's where it gets interesting. I mentioned Jerry Jones. Robert Kraft, both of them, Stan Kroenke of the L.A. Rams has built the new palace out in L.A. They funded their own stadium projects. In doing so, they have given themselves a much greater control of the facility. You create a separate entity to run the facility and own the facility. It's not owned by the team. Therefore, it's not bound for by the, the NFL. If you remember back in the 90s, Jerry Jones owned Texas State. And I don't remember if at the time, I believe the league was a league that was sponsored by Coca-Cola. Jerry Jones, in owning the stadium outright, not 
the Dallas Cowboys, Jerry Jones, was able to make a deal with Pepsi for millions of dollars to sell Pepsi in the state. It went directly against what the NFL did. But because he owned the stadium outright, he was able to do that and make the money. The Pagulas, if they privately finance the stadium and don't get help from the governments, then they're going to be in position to do things like that as well. I, it remains to be seen how it's going to be done. But I do believe they'll get tax breaks or they'll get certain things from the state, from Erie County. But I don't expect a whole lot of money to be put into the stadium by the state or the county. I just don't think coming out of this pandemic, it would be in any way good business for politicians to okay that kind of money. We'll see where it comes from. The other portion of this that I find interesting is going to be the PSLs, personal seat licenses. At every new stadium that's been built, part of the funding has come from PSLs, the sale of PSLs. If you're a season ticket holder, you want to keep your seats. You can do so by paying, and I'll use tech, where Jerry Jones put the Cowboys, between ten dollars and $250,000 per seat for the right to buy tickets. It doesn't buy your tickets. That money buys you that seat, and every year you get an opportunity to purchase tickets. Now, in Buffalo, it's not going to be between ten dollars and $250,000. It might be between ten dollars and $25,000. And the question is, does the Buffalo economy have enough people with that kind of disposable revenue, and again, coming out of pandemic, where that's going to work? If you remember when the Jets and Giants opened MetLife Stadium, the Giants PSL sold out quickly. The Jets PSLs, not so much. It was a completely different thing. And the Jets had to get creative to sell those PSLs that were part of their fi original finance plan for the stadium. It, it's very interesting to me how this is going to work. Now, one thing that goes in the favor of the Pagulas in this respect is currently the Blue Jays are playing in Buffalo. And they are showing, for right or wrong, that there may be a market for high-end ticket prices. The Blue Jays are playing a typical Blue Jays game. For 50 bucks, you could get a really good seat up in Toronto. In Buffalo, you're spending at least twice that for any ticket to get in the building. And the secondary market, when the Yankees were in town last week, the tickets were off the charts. Three $400 tickets. They're also gouging at the concession stands. I saw a picture of the beer list the other day. Craft beer, I think, was $23. A 24-ounce Labatt Light or Labatt was $18. You can't tell me that the Pagulas aren't paying attention to this and looking at this as, if they're getting that, I can get that here, too. Everything is going to be much more costly. For years, the Bills have had one of the cheapest tickets in the NFL. That will change with the new stadium. Sal Marano, who's covered the Bills for years, has always said that he fears the day a new stadium comes because he doesn't feel that Buffalo will be able to afford 
the higher prices. Now, again, supply and demand is the ultimate answer when it comes to all of these questions. If the bills create a pricing structure that prices out a portion of their fans and they're not able to sell tickets, well, they're going to adjust the prices to find the sweet spot where the fans can come to the games. It'll be interesting early on, especially because everyone's going to want to go to the new stadium. Everyone's going to want to see it. And theoretically, this is three, four years down the road where the team is still very competitive. And I think that's an important factor too. Right now, this team is poised to win. 2025 or 26, a good portion of this team is going to have been turned over. It's imperative that going into the new stadium where the prices are going to be much higher, that the team is still as competitive as they look like they're going to be over the next couple of years. That is going to be a huge, huge piece of the puzzle. Because if you have bad football, and we've seen a lot of bad football in Buffalo, and you're charging huge prices for the fans to get in there, well, that's going to be a big, big problem. So a lot of questions, but I think exciting news. Here's the other, I guess I should have started with this. The minute this stadium is built and completed, I think there is no longer a worry about whether it's the Gulas or whoever else owns the Bills, of the Bills leaving Orchard Park. And again, if the Gulas put the money up for the stadium, which I think they're going to have to, they're not selling the team anytime soon. They're going to keep that team there. So the Bills will remain in Buffalo in, for the next couple decades minimum. So there will no longer be. And I've always feared that. Until, even with the Pagula zoning it, I've always feared that this franchise is worth much more in another market. So somebody coming in to buy the bills could overpay, move them to another market, and make. It's going to be a situation going forward that the bills will stay in Buffalo. So that is the first part of the stadium discussion, or that's the first part of the bills discussion. One other thing I got to hit on, and this has been a big story lately, has been the conversation around Cole Beasley and his attitude towards the COVID-19 vaccinations. He doesn't feel he should get one, and he doesn't feel that he should have to comply by the COVID protocols that the NFL is likely to have in place when the season starts. And he's even gone so far as to say if he has to retire, so be it. He'll no longer play for the money. He plays for the fun of the game. So if it leads to him being retired, so be it. The reaction to his statement is something that to me, it's a microcosm of society today. We can no longer disagree about anything. Whether you agree with what Cole Beasley said or you disagree, it's his choice. It's solely his choice. And there are going to be things that if you choose to not get a vaccine, 
I'm sure there are going to be things that you may not be able to do. And that's part of it. You make a choice based on knowing the chain of events. If I get a vaccine, I may get this, this, this. I might not be able to do this, this. That's part of it. Cole Beasley's clearly made a choice. It is his choice. Fortunately, in my opinion, over 70% of New Yorkers have chosen to get the vaccine. And because we've made that choice, things are now opening up. And, and to me, that's part of the choice that 70% of New Yorkers have made. I just hate that we can no longer respect each other's choices. You make a choice that's best for you. I may not disagree with it. As a matter of fact, I recently had a discussion with a friend about vaccinations, and he and I did not agree. But he's a very good friend of mine. I love him like a brother. And we went on about our day. To me, that's the way it's supposed to be. You don't have to agree with everything everyone says. But at the same time, if you disagree, it doesn't mean you have to hate that person and wish bad things on them. But unfortunately, that's the society we currently live in. One other Bill's note before I move on is that minicamp wrapped up. It was a very short minicamp. The last day was canceled. But a name came out of minicamp, and I think it's it's interesting. With Cole Beasley entering the last year of his deal, there's going to be a lot of discussion about Cole off the field. But the reality is on the field, he's still a very effective player. But the wide receiver room right now, with Cole Beasley, Stephon Diggs, Emmanuel Sanders added to that. We saw a lot from Gabriel Davis in his rookie year. Should be pretty strong. But there's another name to keep an eye on. And I kept hearing this name. Isaiah Hutchins, last year's six-round draft pick. Hurt most of last year. Came on in camp last year. Showed some things. Apparently this year, in this offseason, he has been having a very, very good offseason. I don't know how big of an impact he'll make. But it may be something that if Cole Beasley does decide to retire, it may be something to keep an eye on, that the Bills have built enough depth to withstand something like that. Just a name to keep an eye on as we go forward. This is the time of year that NFL GMs don't sleep very well. Many camps have wrapped up. There's no draft to, to get ready for, although they're, they're working, don't get me wrong, on prospects and things like that. But from now until camp starts, which is usually towards the end of July, the players who, again, we're all coming out of pandemic. It's summer with throughout the, the country. We're all having a lot of opportunities to do things we haven't done in a long time. Players who have been working very hard to get in shape, have gone to camps, mini camps, done all these things, now have time on their hands. And sometimes when we have time on our hands, we don't make the best choices. In the last few days, this is what has happened. Vikings defensive tackle, Jalen Twyman, he's a rookie, six-round pick. He came from Pitt, was shot four times sitting in the car. His agent, Drew Rosenhaus, said, wrong place, wrong time, mistaken identity. I don't know the details of the situation, other than fortunately Jalen is going to be fine. Shot four times, though. Concerning. 
Kansas City defensive end Frank Clark, who's been a scumbag going back to his days at Michigan when he was convicted of a domestic violence situation. He was kicked off the Michigan. Well, he was he didn't wasn't allowed to stay at Michigan. It was after the football season when this came out. He pled down and was still drafted by Seattle and was traded from Seattle to Kansas City. It's funny. You don't hear a whole lot about Kansas City having bad people like Frank Clark because everyone likes Andy Reid. Patrick Mahomes is fun to watch. Frank Clark's been a bad dude since college, as I just said. It's now rumored that he was arrested over the weekend because he was driving around in his Lamborghini with an Uzi in it. I, I didn't know Uzi still existed or still were a thing, but, you know, what NFL player doesn't need an Uzi when he's driving around in his Lamborghini? But this possibly may have been Frank Clark's second weapons possession charge of 2021. There's been reports that there was a March arrest as well. I don't know that that's official yet or if that really did happen. Did read that. So Frank Clark, who was a key part of that defensive line as the Chiefs beat the Bills in last year's AFC Championship, I would assume a lengthy suspension coming from a guy who has a serious history of brushes with the law. And then also this weekend, Arizona's first-round pick, Zayvon Collins, linebacker from Tulsa, he was arrested for speeding and reckless driving. Again, we have about four weeks of NFL players gone wild. And, and here's where it gets a little dicey for the league. And everyone needs to, again, hope that their players don't get themselves in trouble and get themselves ready for camp coming up. The last NFL note is one of those things that it is a huge deal because it's the first. It won't be the last, and hopefully it's the last big thing. Carl Nassib, who's a Raiders defensive lineman, brother of Ryan Nassib, the former Syracuse quarterback, came out yesterday as gay on his Instagram story, announced that he's gay, and he becomes the first openly gay active NFL player. Michael Sam, the, the kid from Missouri, never made an NFL roster, had a few chances, never made a roster, but Carl Nassib now becomes the first openly gay player. Look, to me, again, the, the big deal of this is that he's the first and I think it's sad still that there are people in this country now who are going to react to this news so negatively. It's just, it shouldn't matter. Again, choices, lifestyles, live your life. Why should Carl Nassib have to sacrifice his life because you disagree or think that his lifestyle is wrong? It's his life. It has nothing to do with your life. Now, if it goes against your belief system, that's your business. His life is more important than your theory on his life. Sorry. I'm happy for Carl Nassim because I'm sure today the weight of the world is off of his shoulders. It, it's just unfortunate that anybody in his position has to make a big deal of it. To announce it. Now, I'm sure throughout the league, 
that Carl Nassib isn't the only gay man in the NFL. And frankly, there's probably several other gay men playing in the NFL that the players know about. And, and honestly, I think most of the players will be incredibly accepting of this. Most. There's going to be some that aren't going to be. And again, you're talking about a, a group of people that numbers into the thousands. So not everyone's going to be on board. But mostly young people are much more accepting than older people. Where I think it's going to be different is the fans and, and maybe some people of the older generations in front offices are going to have a problem with Carl Nassim. But I think most of the players probably, A, already knew or have an idea about some other guys who may be and don't care. Show up on Sunday and do your job. Be a practice. Be a leader. Be a good teammate. All of those things are far more important than a person's lifestyle. It's, it's just, again, to me, this is one of those firsts that's a big deal. And I, I actually hate that it's a big deal because it's a first. It shouldn't matter. Live your life. And I'm happy for Carl Nassim that he was able to come out and hopefully unburden himself. And his life, hopefully today, is better than it was yesterday. So there's that. Major League Baseball, the Yankees last week. I was shoveling dirt on them. Yeah, they, they were struggling and nothing went right. Uh, they went to Buffalo for the three-game series against the Blue Jays, swept them with the help of a triple play, got another triple play this weekend. They've now won five of six. The defense has been key. Aaron Judge robbing a home run in, up at Buffalo. Again, the triple plays, two games. The A's run into one that ends the game. So there's a lot of things that the Yankees have going right. And if you start to look at what's coming up, I find it really interesting that before the All-Star break, the Yanks now play Kansas City at the stadium for three. That is, in my opinion, two or three wins right there. They then travel to Boston for the first time this year. That should be a pretty good series. Three there. They come back home, play four against the Angels. As exciting as the Angels have been, with Shohei Otani, they're not a very good team. The the Yanks should win that. They then play the Mets, and I'm going to talk about the Mets in a minute. Still very banged up. They're getting the Mets, in my opinion, at a good time. Should have some success there. Travel to Seattle for three, and then Houston for three. And then the All-Star break. And it's kind of nice for the team, schedule-wise, that a West Coast trip out to Seattle is going to be followed by the All-Star break, you get, you get a little time to catch your breath, if you will, when you come back. So I think the Yankees are, are not only turning the corner, but this season is now, which is, you know, we're about a third of the way through. There's a lot of season left. I, I think they have a chance. Again, if the pitching can hold, and here's where it gets dicey. If the pitching can do its job, then I think the Yankees can hang in there. Still not sure because of that division. The, the series of Boston will be interesting because the Red Sox are still playing pretty good baseball. They, the Yankees have posed their will on, on the Blue Jays, the young Blue Jays team. So the people that they need to beat, they beat in Toronto. Can they do the same, I should say, in Buffalo? But 
can they do the same with with the Red Sox? And if that's the case, they're going to have a very good chance to compete in the AL East. The Mets injuries, it's just been ridiculous. And I know this is a big part of the story in Major League Baseball this year, injuries. But just yesterday, when the Mets are playing a doubleheader for the second time in three days, they announced three injuries to their pitching staff. Robert Gazelman, who's a long reliever, is out probably six to eight weeks with a torn lap. Joey Lucchese, who was their fifth starter, who had pitched to a 1-3 ERA over his last five starts, really turned his season around, has t- a torn UCL ligament and will likely need Tommy John surgery to be out this year and most of next. And Jerry Spamilia, who's rebounded this year, been very effective out of the bullpen, has a hip impingement. He went on the injured list. Now, they did get Jeff McNeil, their starting second baseman, back. And, and in my opinion, their most consistent hitter when he's healthy and when he's right. They got him back yesterday. They're likely to get right fielder Michael Conforto back this week. Brandon Nimmo is working on a rehab assignment in Syracuse. So there are reinforcements coming back for the Mets. But unfortunately, the, the injuries to what had been a relatively healthy bullpen losing two members and another starter. Carlos Carrasco has begun throwing off flat ground, which means he's still weeks away from joining the rotation. Noah Syndergaard still shut down as he battles his way back from Tommy John surgery. Those two guys, if they can come back and join the Mets, would be a huge addition. The Mets' first three pitchers, Jacob DeGrom, I'll talk about in a second, Marcus Stroman and Taiwan Walker have been great. But the fourth and fifth, it's been a mystery, and it's only going to get more so. I do believe that the Mets are going to have to make a trade that they didn't want to make. They thought they had enough pitching depth coming into the season that they would be fine. But I think they're going to have to go out and get a starter that can give them innings every fifth day and and give them somebody to take some relief out of that bullpen because you can't just have two spots in the rotation where they're basically bullpen games. You will kill your bullpen doing that. So I think they're going to have to give up prospects that they don't want to give up, take on a contract that they probably don't want to take on and give themselves an opportunity because let's face it, when you're in first place and you're getting to the all-star break in first place, that's the time to go for it. And, and, with this new ownership group, with with Steve Cohen in place, the finances are there. And Cohen said this week, if he has to go over the luxury tax, he's willing to do so. So we'll see where it goes. But the Mets are going to have to probably make a deal, in my opinion. Jacob DeGrom yesterday pitched. And again, he had come out of his last start again after three innings, a start which he faced nine batters, struck out eight of them. DeGrom continues to do things while skirting injury. So he started yesterday, gave them five innings, threw 70 pitches. He gave up a hit. The hit he gave up was a double that landed between two Mets outfielders on the warning track. Should have been an out. Struck out only six in five innings. That was weird. Walked two. That's even more strange, but didn't allow a run. Jacob DeGrom now, and this is going to be a weekly thing, to update his stats because it's just ridiculous. Is seven and two. He has a 
1.75 ERA. He has struck out 117 in 72 innings pitched and has a 0.514 whip, walks and hits per innings pitched. He's now had a 30 inning scoreless streak. Nobody scored on him in the last 30 innings. Yesterday was the 12th start in a row that he has allowed one, run, one earned run or less. That breaks a tie that for the major league record for that stat he held with Bob Gibson. So now he holds it on his own. It's truly incredible what this man has been doing. And every fifth day, and it's funny, with the crowd back watching the game yesterday, it actually reminded me of the 80s when Doc Gooden was so dominant. And every time DeGrom got to two strikes, the crowd would, would get up and start clapping and cheering and the energy. And you think about, you know, here we are in late June. This is only going to get more so as the games become more important and the crowds continue to grow later in the season. Could be a very special season for Jake DeGrom. So it, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch where this goes from here. The Supreme Court, we're all over the place. I taught an economics class at the beginning of the podcast. Now I'm getting into the court system. But yesterday, the Supreme Court voted nine to zero. All nine Supreme Court justices voted the same way. First off, that never happens, ever. Never, ever, ever do all nine vote the same way. But yesterday they did. That the NCAA is violating antitrust laws with their business model. Justice Kavanaugh, in particular, went off in his opinion about the NCAA and wrote how poorly designed and how illegal in any other form of business the NCAA's business model would be. So this goes against the NCAA's ideals of not paying student-athletes, and I think even more than, than not paying, them not allowing the athletes to make money off their name, their image, or the likeness. And this dates back to when Ed O'Bannon and several others sued the NCAA for using Ed O'Bannon's likeness on a, a video game. If you remember back when the NCAA used to use players' likenesses on video games. The NCAA get a ton of money from the video game company. The players would get nothing. And the NCAA ruled that the players could not make money off their name, image, or likeness. I believe 30 of the 50 states have now overturned that and allowed players to do so. Think of, I'll use Jerry McNamara, for example. If Jerry McNamara, when he was at his most popular at Syracuse University, decided he was going to have a signing event where he would autograph things, he could, he could have made a ton of money. People would have showed up to see him. It would have been a violation of the NCAA rules. McNamara, in this current day and age, with this ruling – could now do that and make money off his image or likeness. If a car company, for example, a car dealership, wanted to hire Jerry McNamara 
to sell cars at Syracuse with commercials. They could pay Jerry McNamara for that now. These are the changes that I expect to be made quickly. I, I expect all 50 states to allow athletes to make money off their name, image, or likeness. What I don't expect is the NCAA to have its members, its universities, start paying athletes. What I do expect is the NCAA to look at this and start giving stipends to their athletes and allowing their athletes to have jobs, make money off their likeness. It's not going to change overnight. The NCAA will try to find ways to keep as much of the money in-house as they can. Now, I got to say, the other side of this argument is that that money that the NCAA creates, in a lot of cases, trickles down to A, other sports programs to finance them, B, other athlete, other students who aren't athletes to allow them opportunities to get educations. So while the NCAA business model is clearly broken, and again, the Supreme Court ruled that it is, the results of that broken model have benefited many, many people who aren't athletes. But the member institutions are certainly going to look at this and come up with a way to help student-athletes have a better time of it, which, frankly, student-athletes have a pretty good time of it anyway, but they are required now not to work. They should have been allowed to work. They should have been allowed to make money off their likeness. You look at Zion Williamson, who probably got paid to go to Duke anyway, but Zion, when he was there, could, should have been able to make money off of him being there. And, and that's where I think we're going to find out just how much change the NCAA is going to allow. The U.S. Open was this weekend. It was fantastic. Torrey Pines, a great venue, picturesque on the cliffs overlooking the Pacific Ocean, the hang gliders in the background, just everything about it, fantastic. Golf course held up great with a six-under par winning score. It felt like U.S. Open golf. It wasn't unfair. It, you didn't hear a whole lot of people complaining about it. It's just a great setup and a great golf course, and it was a great tournament. John Rahm, who I think was owed one by the golf gods. I mean, the fact that John Rahm gets to a six-shot lead at the Memorial, very prestigious tournament, by the way, and finds out on the as he's walking off the 18th hole on Saturday – a tournament that's basically in his back pocket that he has tested positive for COVID and has to withdraw. How it was handled was poor. The, the fact that he had to withdraw with that lead, it just left a bad taste. He wins the U.S. Open by birdieing the 17th and 18th hole. Nobody has ever won the U.S. Open by birdieing the 17th and 18th hole. He wins by one over Louis Oosthuizen, who has been a model of consistency in majors and particularly in the U.S. Open over the last few years has been a big part of that. We saw some really good golf and some really good competition. We also got to see it, and this makes me very happy, Bryson DeChambeau, who is somebody I just cannot root for. I think he's a jackass of a person. And Bryson 
struggled very badly. Shot 44 in the back nine on Sunday. Shot six over par, 77 overall. Bryson afterwards said he got some bad breaks. You know, the, the difference in Bryson saying that is he actually believes it. And, and it, it's a good thing. You know, I'll give Bryson credit here. He didn't get bad breaks. He had bad shots that ended up in bad spots. He was penalized for bad shots. When you shank a shot or blade it out of a bunker, that's not a bad break. Bryson did that. He, he, he was made a double bogey on 13 because he hit a bad shot and didn't recover from it. He had made a quadruple bogey on 18 in large part because he shanked a shot. So those aren't bad breaks. Those are bad shots. But the beauty of Bryson DeChambeau is his arrogance won't allow himself to believe that he had bad shots. In his opinion, he had good shots. They just got bad breaks. So because of that, his mind is so strong, he'll compete right away. Bad golfers like me hit a shank and think, man, now I'm going to shank every shot. Uh, a good golfer like Bryson DeChambeau, he's going to hit that shot and think, that's a bad break. Well, no, it really isn't. <clears throat> the NBA had two game sevens over the weekend, and they were spectacular. Saturday night, the Nets and Bucks in their game seven, Kevin Durant hits an all-time shot to send the game to overtime. Unfortunately for Durant and the Nets, he was gassed, and they had very little left. James Harden, I, I can't believe I'm going to say this, gutted it out. He, he gave them all he could. He just wasn't right, wasn't close to right. The Nets, if they had got anything from Joe Harris, who was a 47% three-point shooter throughout the season, couldn't hit water if he fell out of a boat uh, during the playoffs, that was as big a factor as anything, in my opinion, in the loss to the Bucs. And now the Bucs move on. Giannis has a chance to silence his critics, though. The free-throw shooting, I think, is going to be a real problem going forward because anytime you're in question, you're not going to give up a layup to him. You follow him, put him on the line. I think it's how it's got to be done. Hawks at Philly on Sunday night. Man, end of the road, I think, for this Philly team. Ben Simmons, just there's so much there. The kids hadn't taken a shot in the fourth quarter in a couple of games. How is that even possible? Passes up a wide-open dunk. The kid's 6'9". Look, I'm not a Ben Simmons fan. Ever since I watched the documentary and showed the person that he is and was in his one year at LSU, not a guy I choose to root for. But at 6'9", his ability to pass, and even in that game, he was very good passing with 13 assists, had eight rebounds. Of course, he's 6'9", should be able to get rebounds from the point guard position. But he had only five points. And, and Ben Simmons seems like a kid who's at a crossroads of his career, and I don't believe Philly's a place for him to figure it out. Joel Embiid at 31-11 and 11 in the Game 7. But Embiid, again, he's either always hurt or he's not in shape. So when it's crunch time, he has a hard time producing in the fourth quarter. For the Hawks, a young team with a bunch of young kids who really probably don't know any better. They're led by Trey Young, and Trey Young played poorly for three quarters. Didn't shoot well at all. He's 5-23 in that game seven. Still ended up with 21 points and 10 assists. Made his free throws down the stretch. But Kevin Herter, and, and Kevin Herter's the kid I've always rooted for. He played for the City Rocks. 
AAU team, the City Rocks team that Joe Girard played for, that Isaiah Stewart played for, a lot of local talent here played on that team. Kevin Herter from the Albany area, teammates with Ian Anderson, who's the uh, the Braves pitcher who pitched against the Mets last night. They played Little League baseball together, grew up in the same town outside of Albany. Kevin Herter was a kid who Syracuse missed on badly. He went to Maryland, had a couple good years in Maryland before being a first-round pick, had 27 points, seven boards, three assists in that game seven. And to me, that's one of those things that if your star doesn't do it, somebody else has got to step up. And, you know, go back to the Nets discussion. Kevin Durant had 48 points. He needed help. Joe Harris couldn't get it to him. Trey Young struggled. Kevin Herter stepped up. That's why the Hawks are moving on, and that's why the Nets are not. The other conference final going on in the West, the Suns take a 1-0 lead over the Clippers. The Clippers playing without Kawhi Leonard, ACL injury. There's been very little talk. I think they're still holding out hope that somehow he could come out, gut it out, and play, give them something. I don't know how realistic that is. But the Suns are playing without their best player as well. I, I say best player, most important player. Devin Booker is the best player in this series, and he showed it in game one. But Chris Paul is a huge part of the success of the Phoenix Suns, still in the COVID protocol. No word as to when he'll return. But the longer this series goes on, the more of a chance that Chris Paul comes back. And frankly, it could end up being a blessing in disguise. Paul, who has dealt with a lot of injuries going through, it's giving him a chance to rest his body and get healthy so when he does get out of the protocol, he'll be able to step right in, be healthy, finish the season, and hopefully his Hall of Fame career, he might end up with his first title. I think there's a real chance that the Suns get this done this year. So there's that. NBA draft lottery is tonight. Houston, Detroit, Orlando, top three teams in the lottery have the best chances. The top two picks, in my opinion, will come down between Kate Cunningham, the 6'9", Point guard from Oklahoma State, very good player, good all-around player. Or Jalen Suggs, the point guard from Gonzaga, who had such a very good freshman season. Two-way point guard there. So that's the NBA part. The NHL playoffs going on. Islanders down 3-2, got beat 8-0 last night. Just an ugly, ugly outing for them. Need to win. And then out west, of course, you've got Montreal and Vegas going at it there, tied up there. One last thing, and I think this is going to happen sooner rather than later. The Sabres are going to trade Jack Eichel, and they're probably going to trade Rasmus Ristolainen and probably going to trade Sam Reinhart as well. Again, this is a, a misguided franchise. This has been a very good story the last few days in the Buffalo News about the last days of J Jason Bottrell and how that all went down last year when the Pagulas fired so many people throughout the organization promoted Kevin Adams. Kevin Adams now the GM in charge, and he will likely be the guy that makes the ultimate call on whether or not Jack Eichel's going to go. In my opinion, Jack Eichel, you trade him now, you're going to get pennies on the dollar just like you did with Ryan O'Reilly. And this is the Pagula's MO. When they have trouble with a player, whether it's Ryan O'Reilly, there was things there, move them out. 
Evander Kane. Things in the community, they didn't move him out. Jack Eichel has these things, move him out. Who are the fans going to pay to go see this year? Fans are going to be back in the building. It's going to be a bad team again. You're going to have your best player gone. Who are they going to pay to go see? When is this team going to be good? They've already tied the record now for the most consecutive years of missing the playoff in NFL and NHL history. So this year, likely, again, a non-playoff year, set the record. They've got the number one overall pick. Nobody's excited about the draft. There isn't a generational talent like Connor McDavid or Jack Eichel in this draft. It's just, why are you going to trade this guy? Because he doesn't want to be there? Is it really that irreparable? Or are the rumors of Jack Eichel true and you want to be done with him because you don't want those rumors to come out? On your team. And again, I'm not going to expand on that. I've, I've heard some things, and I'm sure many of you have heard some things as well. Is that why you know things that you're not confident in this kid turning it around at his young, young age? Or is it you just want to be out from under the noise of Jack Eichel and the contract of Jack Eichel? Either way, it's not going to be a decision that's made with the best interest of the franchise. I think it's a decision made in the best interest of the Pagoulas. And yet again, the Pagoulas make a decision that's going to long-term not be a good one for the Sabres. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Next week, back in studio for the first time in well over a year. We started out in studio. The pandemic hit, but doing it from my house. Joe's in the studio. Well, next week, I'll be in the studio with Joe Looking forward to that. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good week. We'll talk next Tuesday. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. <laughs>